And as Mark said, we're picking up from um, where we left off those who were able to join us for the church family weekend yesterday, as we had three talks looking at Colossians. And today we've got our final talk um, called Overflowing with Thankfulness. If you actually flick back in your Bibles to chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, you'll see what we've been saying is the key theme verse, or two verses, right at the center and the heart of Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And that verse breaks into four parts, and those four parts broadly map onto the four main parts of the letter. So the first part, to continue to live your lives in Christ. That was the first part we looked at, um, looking at chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, the supremacy of Jesus Christ as Lord and why we would want to continue in Him. Then the second part, rooted and built up in Him, and we looked at chapter 1, verses 24 to chapter 2, verse 5, and the importance of having deep roots in Christ and being built, both individually and together, into a strong foundation, a strong building in Christ. And then the third part, as we looked at it, um, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, looking at chapter 2, verses 6 to 23, and the danger the Colossian Christians were facing of going away, drifting away to other things that looked you know, attractive because they were saying Christ is great, but you need something else as well. And today we're finishing on that last phrase, overflowing with thankfulness, as we look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Now, thankfulness, I don't probably need to tell you, is a very attractive quality, isn't it? It's something we find attractive in other people. When we see gratitude in someone else's life, there's something that's intrinsically attractive about that, so much so that we actually long for it in our lives. And it might not have escaped your notice that in the culture at the moment, thankfulness or gratitude is a virtue which has been espoused a lot. A lot of studies have been done. Apparently, being a grateful or thankful person will give you a better night's sleep, both in quantity and quality. So you'll sleep for longer and you'll sleep better if you're grateful. Uh, apparently, um, it also improves mental well-being in a general sense. Um, and also, one study that I came across said that it will actually um, lengthen your life as well. Having a grateful heart is a stronger heart and a healthier heart. So there you go. But I, I guess you probably don't need, you know, kind of scientific tests to show you or to persuade you that thankfulness is a good thing, because I think you probably believe that already. It is just intrinsically attractive, and you long to have it, which is why I think it's such big currency at the moment. So gratitude, thankfulness, as I was saying, one of the things that's very big in our culture at the moment, but there's a lack of coherence about how it is that we cultivate thankfulness. Is it, for example, just that kind of good, polite, middle-class virtue, you know, mind your P's and Q's and make sure you say thank you, even if it's often through gritted teeth? I'm reminded of the story of the uh, soldier um, in the Second World War who was um, facing overwhelming odds coming towards him and his battalion as the tanks kind of rumbled over the hill. And his commanding officer, who was commanding the battalion, looked across at him and he said, Private, there's nothing for it. We're completely outgunned, as you can see. I want you to pray. And the private looked at him rather odd and said, Sir? He said, Well, you heard the command, Private. There's nothing for it. Pray. Well, I'm not really a believing or praying man, sir. Well, neither am I, Private. But don't you think now is a good time for us to kind of become so? Well, I, I guess so, sir. So pray. But, sir, I, I really don't know any prayers. In fact, I think I only know one prayer. Well, that would be good enough for us. Just pray, Private. Okay, sir, would you please bow your head for what we are about to receive. May the Lord make us truly thankful. 
I mean, is that what we're talking about? Gratitude of gritted teeth, you know, say thank you. Say thank you to God, even though you don't really feel it. That is not what is being talked about at all. Because you'll notice the phrase in chapter 2, verse 7, was overflowing with thankfulness. It talks of an abundant harvest of thankfulness, uh, that image of water flowing over and flowing over and spilling out into lots of areas of life. That's the image here. That's not gritted teeth thankfulness, is it? So how do we get that type of thankfulness? Well, we're going to um, look at it as we see that, first of all, it's a huge theme in Colossians. This isn't just incidental. So first of all, flick all the way back, just a little bit of searching around in Colossians, chapter 1, verse 3, where it's the way that Paul starts the letter because it's absolutely foundational to the apostle's ministry and to his life. Chapter 1, verse 3, we always, he says, thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he's not prone to hyperbole. He doesn't overstate things. So if he's saying he is always thanking God for this church in Colossae, you can take it that this was a daily occurrence. It would grip his mind as he walked down the road on his journeys. He would think about the church in Colossae, this fledgling church, and he would give thanks to God for what he's doing in their lives. Not only is it absolutely foundational to the apostle's life and ministry, but also he wants it to be the key component, arguably, of every um, person's life and uh, ministry. So look at chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. This is his great prayer for the Colossians. And what does he pray? That they would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father as though thankfulness kind of draws all of those other points of his prayer together. He longs for them to be joyfully giving thanks, not just thankfulness um, in a kind of neutral way, but an overflowing of joy. Then flick forward to our passage, chapter 3, verse 15. What does he want the Christian community to be shaped by? Chapter 3, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, plural, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. He wants it to mark out the early Christian community, a community of gratitude and thankfulness. And lastly, what does he want for every believer individually? Chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Do you see how important it is? It's key to his ministry. It's key to his prayers. It's key to the Christian community, and it's key to every individual believer's walk in Christ, thankfulness. I wonder is, if your perspective of Christianity a thankful um, belief system? You know, is your perspective of walking with Christ, is it marked out by gratitude and thankfulness? Do you think that as a foundational virtue? My hunch is we think of faith, love, and hope, and they are the great tripartite three virtues in the Christian walk. But what about thankfulness? Does that mark out your Christian walk? And if you're someone looking in, you know, you might want thankfulness, but where does it come from? Well, let's look at how, first of all, thankfulness flows from a gospel perspective, our first point. And we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, these wonderfully rich but very dense verses, as we look at how thankfulness comes from a gospel perspective. That is, it's not something we have to dig around inside ourselves trying to manufacture. It's not smiling and hoping that eventually that behavioral response will somehow work its way into your heart. No, it flows from an understanding of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he has done for us. And look, therefore, how Paul starts, chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. This is one of the great apostolic injunctions. He does this all the time. He says, if this is true, 
then live this way. Since this is true, line up the rest of your lives and your reality with it. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And then it comes again, for you died. In other words, because this has happened, let it shape your lives and let it shape your thankfulness. Paul knows the great danger for us as human beings is to lose our perspective on who God is and what he's done for us. And as soon as we do that, we lose all sense of gratitude. Notice, first of all, that this is thankfulness to Christ. It is striking to me that all of the talking culture of gratitude, there is no mention of whom we are to be grateful to. That is totally incoherent. The idea of being thankful in a general sense but not thankful to someone makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. You can't talk about being grateful unless you are being grateful to someone. Life is a gift, we're told. Yeah, but who's the giver? If there is no giver, there's no one to be thankful to. If it's just random chance, thanking chaos doesn't help you. Thankful for small mercies, we say. Mercy is utterly incoherent without someone who is being merciful. So for all the talk of gratitude, we try to take God out of it as though we can say thanks for life as a gift, but there is no giver. It makes no sense, which is why ultimately it doesn't lead to a life of overflowing joy and thankfulness. But if you know that everything we have is given as a gift of a loving Father in heaven, then that starts to transform you. That leads to joy and thankfulness. Thankfulness here is to Christ. Look at verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Oh, what a wonderful thing this is. That is saying that Christ has, through his resurrection that we've been celebrating on Easter Sunday, has been raised from the dead. He will never die again. He is the first fruits. That's the first part of this resurrection life coming. And now having been raised from the dead, where is he? He is seated at the right hand of God. It's an Old Testament image for authority and power. In other words, he is the exalted king. He is risen. He has conquered death. He has conquered everything that stands against humanity and everything that stands against God. And now he's enthroned on high at the right hand of the Father. All power, all dominion, all authority. And you, if you believe in him, are in him. That is that resurrection life that he has. That power that the grave could not hold. If you are in Christ, is your power is in you because Christ is in you by his spirit and you are in him, united with him. And so what is true of him now by faith is true of you. So you say, well, I wake up this morning and if you're experiencing something like my own, you feel weak and you're trying to get the kids through breakfast or maybe feel a bit tired from yesterday and you wake up and you feel grumpy and you know, you're struggling in life a little bit. You don't feel very powerful. Of course, you're not in and of yourself, but you have Christ's power by being united with him. You have been raised with him. So our thankfulness is expressed to Christ for who we are in him and what he has done for us. This supreme king, this sovereign ruler, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who has made all things for himself, and the one who has redeemed all things. This is Christ. And you are in him. So be thankful to him. Thankfulness to Christ. Four times in these four verses, we get Christ mentioned, being raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ when Christ who is your life appears. Four times, thankfulness is to Christ. And as you grasp him, 
gratitude starts to overflow. Why? Well, secondly, because what He has done for us. We are raised with Christ. That means that our resurrection life is now in Him. So yes, all believers will die, but death is not the same now for those who trust in Christ. Death is just asleep, and that is not a way of trivializing death. That is rather of talking about Christ's victory over death. That is just a phase we will pass through, and there is a life beyond this world made new, resurrection life. And it's not that we wait until heaven comes, but heaven has broken in. Jesus was raised physically in space, time, and history. So the game has changed. Resurrection life is in the world now, changing things, doing things, at work in things, in your life. You're not just waiting until some distant future. No, no, no. You are with Christ now in Him, raised with Him. And then look at that phrase in verse 3. What else has Christ done? Well, we're raised with Him. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, that's a bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Because generally, if I was giving you a list of things to write down to be thankful for, you might not write down your death. I mean, other people might be. No, that's harsh, and I'm sure they won't be. But, you know, why would you be thankful for death? Well, only when you realize the significance of what Christ has done for you in his death. See, God is the source of all goodness, all life, as we saw in Colossians 1. He is supreme over this creation. He is the giver of life. There is no life outside of Him, whether we recognize it or not. And so if we turn away from Him, if we become, as Colossians 1 puts it, alienated from Him, then we are turning away from life to death. We might not realize it, but the clock is ticking. Um, Often people kind of say, well, look, you know, I... I think that the idea that there's a judgment coming for me as a human being is just a bit over the top. Or for my friends, I mean, they seem good people. They don't seem to be doing anything profoundly wrong. Let me give you this, you know, kind of thought experiment. Imagine you met someone, and imagine they were charming, they seemed moral, they were lovely, and they were very, very generous. Whenever you went out with them, they wouldn't let you pay. They'd say, no, no, I'll get the drinks for you. Um, They took you on holidays and paid for a lovely holiday for you. They seemed to be very generous with their money, but you never saw them go to work. So as you get to know them, one day you say to them, look, you're you're a lovely person, but you've got all this money and I never see you working. Do you mind me asking, where do you get your money from? They say, oh, I get it from my parents. You say, but you never talk about your parents. That's interesting. I wouldn't have known that. They say, no, 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 I'm not in a relationship with them anymore. Why is that? Well, I like the money, but I really don't like them, so I have nothing to do with them. I don't talk to them. I just draw down on the bank account. How would you now feel about them? Would that not color everything about them? Their generosity suddenly would not really be generosity, would it? And they're being generous with someone else's money, so it's not real generosity. Their ethics would actually now seem quite deceptive and manipulative. That one act of taking what is not theirs and treating it as though it is theirs with no reference to the giver would change everything about them. If that is true on a human level, how much more true on a divine level. If God gives us everything, and we say, thanks very much, nothing to do with you, but I'll now be generous with it, I'll be lovely and ethical, and I'll be kind to other people with it. Are you not worse than the person I just described? Does that not color everything about you? And is it not reasonable in a culture where we talk of gratitude but deliberately do not mention the giver, that God would say, you want to live life without me when I've given you everything and I'm the source of life and I will plead with you to come back to me, but if you will not, the ultimate reality for you is death? But the wonderful truth is that is not the end of the story. That is what we all deserve. But look at chapter 3, verse 3. For you died. Death is what we deserve, but in Christ, 
A death has been died, but it is not our death. Jesus Christ dies on the cross. He takes all of the punishment on our cosmic ingratitude. He, the source of life, is shut out from life, dying on the cross, to pay for us. He pays for our ingratitude. Entitlement is the most ugly of virtues. As the human race, one of the great condemnations of us is we are entitled. We think everything should be ours by right, and it's not. It's a gift. And we don't so much as give a thought in our natural state to God. And Jesus Christ on the cross pays for it all. He pays for the entitlement. He pays for all those times when you've enjoyed God's good gifts and you haven't even thought about God. He pays for all the ways you want to say, give me the gifts, but not you. I don't want you. He dies on the cross. And if you are united to him by faith, you die in him, which means you never need to die again. It's been paid for. The sting of death is gone. The penalty of death has been dealt with. You have died. And you will never face death in that way again. Think of the great book by Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. In it, Charles Darnay is an aristocrat. It's in the, set in the time of the French Revolution, and he's facing death. He has a wife and a child, and he longs, obviously, not to be going to the guillotine. But by a, um, a quirk of fate, there's a guy called Sidney Carton, who's a drunk young lawyer who's not done much with his life, but he realizes that he's a complete doppelganger. He looks exactly like Charles Darnay. As the story goes on, one night he steals his way into the prison and he drugs Charles Darnay and puts himself in his place so that Charles Darnay is set free. Sidney Carton is now going to go to the guillotine for him. There's a woman in the prison and as they're riding in the cart the next day, she looks and she sees that there's something different about her prison mate and she suddenly realizes what has happened. She says this, are you dying for him and his wife and child? Hush, he says, yes. Will you let me hold your hand, brave stranger, she says. Yes, my poor sister, to the last. Jesus Christ has done that for us. He holds our hand walking to the guillotine so that we won't face the axe. He takes the judgment so that we don't have to, which is why that is something that Paul rejoices in. Do you see how now it's very different? You read chapter 3, verse 3, and death in Christ is the great thing to celebrate. Risen with him, yes, wonderful, praise, resurrection life. But we achieve that through death and his death in our place. You died. Your life now is hidden with Christ in God. So that's the past, you have died. The present, we have raised life. And what's for the future, verse 4? When Christ with your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's not just the past and the present dealt with, but it's the future as well. Again, one of the things we long for in our culture is to have sure hope. Much of our drift into nostalgia and the reruns of the 80s theme tunes and 90s-style discos and things like that is just because we're too afraid to look forward, so we look back. And don't get me wrong, I love a good nostalgic disco. That's great. Or, you know, the reruns of the famous films that we enjoyed and things like that. But there does come a stage when you need to be able to look forward. Our culture can't look forward at the moment. It doesn't know what to look forward to. If you are trusting Christ, you look forward to this. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, he's your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. You will be made glorious as you long to be. The deepest longings of your heart finally fulfilled. 
everything that's good about this world, nothing that's bad about it. And you say, well, that's just wishful thinking, it's just a pipe dream for Christians. No, it's as sure and certain as that gritty reality that turned history on its head, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he rose from the dead, anyone who trusts in him will one day rise from the dead. And if you can prove that he didn't, then it's a pipe dream. But if he did, and he did, then it's true, it's real, and we have a glorious future awaiting us. So past, present, future, all do you see how it's all in Christ And if that is your gospel perspective, well, what is the way to respond? Be thankful. Christ has dealt with your past. You are risen in him now, and one day you face a glorious future, and you don't deserve any of it. So be thankful. How could you not overflow with thankfulness if that is the reality? So how do we respond? Well, notice what we need to do. Verse 1, set your hearts on things above. Verse 2, set your minds on things above. In other words, we need to set both our perception and our inclination, that is both our mind and our heart, to this reality. Our clock at the back there is a wonderful clock. It's actually one is made by the oldest clockmaker in the world. He's not a person who's still alive, I'm talking in general sense. So it was made in 1792 when this church was built, and the earliest clocks were done around 1760 or so. So it's a very, very old clock, which means that it doesn't always keep the best time. So we have to set it and make sure that it's keeping good time. A faulty clock, you need a more accurate clock to actually give you the right time and just to keep setting it to us. Friends, our hearts and our minds are like that. We are like faulty clocks. But we need the accurate reality to reorientate ourselves to that time and time again. Every day you wake up and you wake up and you're just default, like any human being, thinking, life is for me. I'm owed it. God is for me because I'm owed it. That's the natural inclination of the human heart. And you need to reorientate yourself like a faulty clock to the gospel and say, I'm not owed it. I'm not owed anything. God gives everything to me as a gift. And as you start to do that, entitlement starts to change to gratitude. That is the daily walk of the Christian life. And for those who were with us yesterday, one of the wonderful things David said, I thought very insightful things, is that those who walk away from Christ, it's rarely a big, dramatic decision they make. You know how it happens? It's a bit like how a clock goes wrong. One day it's only two minutes out, but then it's not set The next day, it's four minutes out. Let it go for a week. It's quite a way out. Let it go for a month. Ceases to be any use at all. Let that bed in for a whole year. And where are you? That's how the human heart works. We drift from Christ. We forget for a day. We don't let someone bring us back, or we don't read the scriptures to bring us back. And we slowly drift until we are so far from the correct realities of life that we can't even remember why we used to believe. I met a friend of Rebecca's and mine recently, and tragically, he stopped trusting in Christ. And when Rebecca spoke to him about it, of course, sensitively and gently, she said, you know, what changed? Was there a particular intellectual doubt or something that came up? He said, no, not at all. She said, so what happened? He said, I think I stopped living it, and eventually I stopped believing it. Take note. Just stop living it. Stop setting the clock. You'll soon stop believing it. Nothing had changed in the intellectual realities, the objective reality of what happened. So set your hearts and your minds on Christ. Be overflowing with thankfulness. More briefly then, let's just look, lastly, at um, gospel change. Second one, gospel change. We're just going to go through this quite quickly, as I said. I want to spend most of the time 
on the first four verses. If we have this gospel perspective, how will that impact our lives? How will this thankfulness work out? Well, it will change everything. The heart of the gospel change starts in the heart. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Notice two things. First of all, that as Paul starts to look at gospel change in a person's life, he does not go straight to behavior. He goes straight to the heart. Our perspective influences our heart. All of these five things here, they're five vices, five ungodly desires that are rooted in our hearts. And notice as we come to chapter 3, verse 12, how he gives you five godly virtues to replace them. The five and the five, the same number is important. Chapter 3, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, thankfulness has to work its way into the soil of your heart if it's going to bear any fruit. But the first step is a controversial step. He doesn't start with verse 12. He starts with verse 5. In other words, he starts with a negative. And this is not popular in our culture. We are told that if you want change in your life, don't repress your desires. Don't say no to your desires. You can do it. Just let it go. Go with the flow. Be positive, it's all about you. That's why James Bond is our culture's hero. James Bond lives a life without consequences. He has a license to kill, but notice he never feels guilty about that and he never gets charged with murder. He has a license to drink, but you never see his bank balance running dry and you never see him drunk or with a hangover in the morning. He has a license that seems to sleep with as many women as he wants to, but they never knock on his door saying, this child is yours, are you gonna pay up now? He has a license to gamble, but he never loses when everyone knows in real life, if you gamble long enough, the house always wins. He has a life without consequences. Friend, it's a fantasy. That is not life. But our culture says, oh, that's where life is found. No, that's not where life is found. The Bible has a radically different perspective. You want joy in life? You have to learn that you have to say no to some things. Now, of course, every parent knows this, but somehow we think it changes when we become adults. You know how the great psalm, Psalm 1, starts? Blessed, oh, how happy is the one who does not follow the ways of the world. It goes on. You have to deny. And you want gospel change in your life? You want thankfulness to overflow in your life? Have you grasped this reality? There are things you need to say no to in your life. And if you think, like our culture, you just give in, and that will experience joy, you don't know yourself very well. Say no to your desires. Deny your ungodly desires, and then let them work out by denying ungodly behaviors. And then verse 12, displace. So you deny your desires, and then you displace your desires. It's not enough just to say no to them. They have to be replaced by something that is godly. As I say, as a parent, you know this well. If um, Toby, my youngest son, has got hold of something, this morning he particularly wanted the um, washing up cloth. I don't know why he wanted it, he just wanted it, and he would not give it up, and I wanted to do a bit of washing up, unusually. Um, and uh, I was trying to get off him, and if I just pulled it out of his hand, he would have screamed, and he would have hollered, and he would have been very unhappy. So what did I do? I got his favorite toy, I offered it to him, and he let go and grabbed hold of that. Our hearts are just like babies. If we take away our ungodly eyes just wrench them out. Our hearts will scream and they'll go back and they'll be back there like a shot. But show your heart something more attractive, then your heart will latch onto that. And are not the virtues of chapter 3, verse 12 much more attractive? Is not compassion more attractive than rage and anger? 
Is not kindness and humility much more attractive than lust and evil desires? Is not gentleness and patience much more attractive than impurity and greed? Don't you want your life to be shaped by these things? So whenever you see an ungodly desire, whenever you think, I'm so annoyed at her for the way she slighted me, I'm going to get back at her. I'll probably just go and tell a few people about what she's really like. That will get her back. And you feel the rage inside you and the anger inside you. You know what you need to do with that? Look at Christ on the cross. Rather than rehearsing your hurt, remember Jesus Christ. And as you remember what he's done for you, did he try and get you back for the way you slighted him? No. He showed you amazing compassion, incredible grace, incredible patience. And if he did that for you, where do you get off not doing that for other people? And as you start to think on that, it starts to breed compassion in your life. And as that compassion starts to root in your heart, it starts to change your behavior. Deny your ungodly desires. Displace them with godly desires as you remain thankful, and you'll start to see gospel change in your life. So this is the normal Christian life. On one hand, so normal. Thankfulness. What could be more normal than that? Thankfulness to the God who made us and has given us everything. Thankful to the Redeemer who saved us by the death of His Son. And yet, isn't it extraordinary? Because a heart of thankfulness rooted in Christ will start to change and bear fruit as we deny our ungodly sense of entitlement and displace it. And as we do that, we will grow in maturity. And that, of course, is Paul's great aim. Do you remember where we started? His desire in chapter 1, verse 28, to be fully mature. And the key to being fully mature, be thankful in Christ for all he is, for all he's done for you. Let that change your life. Amen. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our ingrained sense of entitlement for all the gifts you give us, and yet we so often take them without a moment's thought to you, the giver. Forgive us that we so often aren't thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for us, dying in our place, rising to new life, a future glory awaiting us. Lord, would our hearts overflow with thankfulness? And as that starts to work it out in our lives, would we be changed? And would we increasingly become like him, the one who is our life? We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.